Don't know if you've heard, but Kamala Harris is being let out of her cage again in yet another attempt to get her some quickie black cred. The week before last, she was on her African safari. And this week, she was throwing in her two cents about the Tennessee legislators who have been expelled. Why she even lowered herself to make a personal visit. You know, this reminds me of all the times when Condoleezza Rice was sent to go speak at black churches on W's behalf because he was politically radioactive, especially after his deliberate withholding of aid and support for New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. More recently, it reminds me of how the orange man sent out his black surgeon general to tell black folks to get the jab and to do it to protect your papa. It's the kind of deliberately insulting, purposely disrespectful slap in the face that it's meant to be. The white media is openly celebrating those two young black legislators in Tennessee. As I've always taught you, if the white media is not attacking a black person, that's your first clue that you want to be on alert. They're trying to paint these two young men as a portrait of black people defying white power, and it's a plausible narrative, admittedly, mainly because they're not making it up. It does have truth to it. Black people, however, cannot be the sacrificial lambs for everyone else, which is the real narrative that this is meant to push. Oh, we got some kids at a private school who were killed, and black folks need to be willing to go to the mat and lose their jobs and everything else just to make sure you stick up for them. You see, black people like John Lewis do a sit-in on the floor of the House of Representatives, not because of all the black people being killed by racist white police, but because an LGBT nightclub was shot up. That's what this uh, civil rights icon sees as rising to the level of importance for him to do the unprecedented move of staging a sit-in on the floor of the House of Representatives, not on behalf of black people, but on behalf of some other community. And now in Tennessee, we got two young black lawmakers who are willing to get expelled because there was a killing at a private school. And when you look at the victims of that mass killing, you see exactly why the white media decided that, oh, this is definitely something that we want to praise these young men for. Now, black people cannot go back to thinking that we're supposed to carry this nation on our backs to a more moral place. We are the poorest, the most politically persecuted, and the most hated people in this country. Yet we are always the ones who are told we have to save this nation. Save it for who? And sure, the young men walking through the cheering crowds with their hands raised victoriously, that certainly makes for great political theater. But the white media knows only too well that their constant hyper-aggressive barrage of demonizing black people makes it where a lot of black folks become susceptible to any white media coverage that merely doesn't attack black people. And if they're pretending to praise black people, why, that can get a lot of black folks to buy into their narrative. Any other group would not have put up with this kind of mule of the nation treatment that we've gotten for even five minutes, much less five centuries. Unless black people are full participants in and full beneficiaries of this nation's wealth and freedom that we built, then we have no business pretending as if any of these political turf wars and squabbles somehow have something of benefit for us. We've been on that particular treadmill for 150 years now, and a lot of us still haven't gotten the memo. We just keep being promised that we have to do something because either the old Southern Democrats or the new Republican Party are too dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. And so we obey. And then after the alleged crisis is averted, which usually <laughs> whoever told us to do their bidding, they get the power they wanted. Nothing changes for us. And then they come back and demand that we do their bidding all over again. They demand it. They never ask us. They order us. 
When Biden said, if you can't decide whether or not to vote for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Did that sound like a request or did it sound like an order? When Obama said, you've got to secure my legacy, did that sound like a request or an order? Now, before we go any further, I'm not here to speak to the virtue of the two young legislators in Tennessee. While I think that we can all recognize the blatant racism for the Tennessee Clavern, I mean, our <laughs> legislature, that's not to say the people who they're attacking are in step with us. Let's be bluntly honest about that. The racists in the Tennessee legislature are mad dogs who will attack anything black. I heard some good things from the two young men. They did mention white supremacy, but that's not new and that's not going to necessarily sway because the black media were the ones who normalized that kind of talk. Though what got my attention was some of the other things that I had heard, like the word patriarchy and references to other communities who they seem very interested in prioritizing. I also heard what occasionally were attempts to talk around black unless they were directly asked. Now, this seems to clearly be because the majority of the young people who showed up to support them were white college-age females. That's no coincidence. This is about political projection. What you have here are two young black legislators who have been expelled by an extremist GOP majority in the Tennessee government. But what do people think when they see it? Well, if you're black, you can decide that you're seeing two young black legislators who are defying white power. But on the other hand, if you're a white college-age female, you can see two young black people who are talking about patriarchy and trying to make sure that the private schools that they and their children go to are going to be safe for them. This is very good for the Democrats as the primary season is about to get underway. Everyone's jockeying for position. The two young legislators in question are already being called new stars in the party by the white media. Keep in mind, they always crown some hand-picked, cherry-picked individuals as being the new black voices or being the new stars of etc whatever my question is since they pay lip service to the racism of the tennessee legislature why didn't they spend a good amount of time talking about what black tennesseans need talk about all the things that black tennesseans are being deprived of by the legislature's racist bent they've got a platform that's what they ought to be using it for don't just limit it to something that only matters to white suburban mothers but of course that's what this is ultimately about the Democrats are preparing for what they hope will be a clean sweep in 2024, and they aim to ride the issues of abortion and gun control to glory. I'm just trying to get you to curb your enthusiasm before you go letting the white media get you all dewy-eyed over those two. Regardless of the clearly racist motivations of the GOP majority of the Tennessee legislature, these two guys are playing the game. They certainly weren't doing this spontaneously. Let's be clear about that. Now, because I know there are some folks who don't hear very well, Yes, these two young legislators are being legitimately attacked by the Tennessee GOP, but that's not based on the stand that they took as much as it's based on their race. The fact that the white woman who the legislators proposed expelling was allowed to stay is proof of that. Now, they're being called the Tennessee Three, but let's be honest, only two of them were expelled. So shouldn't they be called the Tennessee Two? Why are you going to include the white woman at this point? She got to keep her job. But the white media doesn't see any story as being newsworthy unless they can shoehorn a non-black person into it and make it all about them. So here comes Kamala Harris to speak at an HBCU in Tennessee, Fisk University, and your two newly minted stars of the party are hugging up on her because she's done so much for black people, right? Kind of reminds you of how she kicked off her failed presidential campaign in 2020 at Howard University. 
So once again, the Democrats' only idea, do the same thing, just more of it. According to the Aryan propagandists, I mean uh, the Associated Press, there were women from Kamala Harris's sorority in attendance at her little speech in Tennessee the other day. They even quoted one of them saying, it's exciting to see someone from my organization doing great and amazing things. Jesus, black folks are just too addicted to trying to live vicariously through someone else. This is how people remain <laughs> apathetic and refuse to buck the system. This is how people remain seated and never change their circumstances. Rather than fight for the success and power that they should have, instead, they just turn on the TV and try to find somebody who's doing better than them and just live through them instead. Some black folks haven't learned that living vicariously results in real death. The white media will gladly encourage you to live vicariously because it robs you of your ambition. I, for one, would love to ask that AKA woman what great and amazing things Kamala Harris has ever done. Low down Willie Brown selected her to be his side chick. Then she was selected to be the DA of San Francisco. Then she was selected to be the Attorney General of California. Then she was selected to be in the Senate and selected to be Vice President. What exactly has she done? All that's happened is she's been selected by the powers that be. As Vice President, what is she doing? Nothing. Talk about being happy for nothing. And Kamala Harris is hoping that this is where she turns around her rotten image with the black community. It's nice to see the Greek litter bootlegs stick their heads up for the first time in three years, but this is weak sauce. They'll need a hell of a lot more than this if they actually want to move the needle. But Kamala and her handlers think that having these two young men embracing her at this moment right now is going to lend some instant credibility to her, and hopefully she can convince some young black people that she's all right after all. As for Kamala Harris's would-be image rehabilitation tour, I don't think it's going so well. She's gotten a few headlines, but it's mostly preaching to the <laughs> choir. She has not overcome or improved on the same deficiencies that made her presidential campaign a failure before it even began. She's still the same fool who said that she wasn't going to do anything that only benefits black people, something she did not and would never say to any other group. She gets in front of other groups, and it's all about what they deserve and what they're going to get. But when she gets in front of black people, before she even finishes her first sentence, she's already lumping us in with everybody else, minority, people of color, urban, etc. So everyone understands that what she really means is she's not going to do anything that benefits black people at all. The problem for her is not the exclusive benefit part. She's fine with that. Exclusive benefits for immigrants, exclusive benefits for LGBT people. When she was California Attorney General, she vowed that she would never enforce Proposition 8. That was the statewide gay marriage ban that got passed back in 2008 in that state. So Kamala Harris has made it excruciatingly clear that she opposes doing anything for black people. And that's why we're not going to do anything for her. And Kamala's already running into opposition that she's too dense to see. Gavin Newsom is clearly laying the groundwork for a presidential run. At the very least, he's staking out his claim as a Democratic presidential contender. For a little while there, it looked like he might wait to have his turn, which would be in 2028, but you can't keep a good poll down, so he began giving off the signals that he was preparing for something last year when he began running these ads attacking Florida's fascist governor, Moron DeSantis. Newsom put on the charm, flashing that smile of his, talking about how in his state, they believe in freedom. <laughs> and while it's true that Newsom would certainly be better than DeSantis by any measure, it's also true that Newsom has done absolutely nothing to improve the lives of black people in that state. The reparations task force is fine and all, but he doesn't need a task force's recommendations to deal with the problems that black people have been experiencing there. 
So what does Newsom say he's going to do about that? What's he say he's going to do for black people at all? Nothing. Hell, he hasn't even been doing anything about the single biggest problem that his state has and has had for decades now, the skyrocketing cost of living in California. And before you claim that California has always been pricey to live in, that's not true. You have to be pretty young to think that. California has always had its pricier zip codes like 90210, etc. This was no different and until recently no worse than any other state. The main reason California became such a magnet for so many Americans in the 20th century was because of the cheap land prices. California is a big state and people were invited to buy land at good prices. The state invested in itself, which is why their educational system was the envy of the country for so long. Affordable housing, good education, the movie industry, a business-friendly environment, and great weather. So long as you were willing to put up with the occasional earthquake and the most crooked cops on earth, California was an otherwise great place to live. However, for about the last 30 years, that trend has been in reverse, and the last 10 years has been kicked into high gear. Rents are sky high out there, more than a mortgage payment, which doesn't matter because there are few houses to buy, and even the ones that are available sell in the mid to high six figures. And that's not because it's such a great housing market out there, it's because real estate speculation has been allowed to run wild. The tech companies definitely haven't been helping matters. With real estate they don't buy for their corporations, they usually invite a bunch of young tech employees out there, which helps to drive prices for housing through the roof. But even if you make six figures at Google or Facebook, you still wind up spending a disproportionate amount of your money on housing. And that's mostly renting for a good number of them. Housing is hard to find in California, but a house that you can actually afford is harder to find than an honest cop in the LAPD. You have people like teachers who don't even live in the cities they work in. California leads the nation in so-called super commuters, people who spend an hour or more just trying to get to work every day. They've become frighteningly common in California. The mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, hadn't even owned a home. She certainly didn't have one when she became mayor. And she's not alone. Members of the LA City Council didn't have a house until they got on the city council, which is the highest paying job many of them ever had, and the only one that put them in a position to pull the strings necessary to get a home. Now, on the one hand, when it comes to housing, you've got the shady developers who want to be able to get as much money as they can for each and every home that they build. And on the other hand, you happen to have the NIMBY crowd. NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard because they claim that they didn't want low-cost housing built near where they live. But even when you talked about more expensive housing, that wasn't good enough for them either. In the last few years, the NIMBY crowd has degenerated into bananas, and I don't just mean their mentality, though that does accurately describe them. Banana is an acronym that means build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. This is what the NIMBYs were always about. They didn't just oppose low-cost housing. They opposed housing of any sort for anyone. Why? Because, as they see it, their house's value is based on housing remaining scarce. When cities talk about zoning more property for single-family homes, the NIMBY banana crowd only hears that their house's value is going to go down because there's going to be more inventory. So this, for them, is not about crime, as they claim, or about anything else. It's about protecting the value of their only asset, an asset whose value is completely and thoroughly determined by how many other homes there are. Do they think that this game will go on forever? No, they don't. But as they see it, Hopefully, it will end with their homes being worth a hell of a lot more than they were when they paid for them. That's the entire idea. By the way, 
you'll recall that Dave Chappelle disgraced himself by going to his city or rather hamlet meeting and sounding like a full-blown male Karen whining about low-income housing being built too close for his comfort. Given his background, he should have been ashamed of himself, but on a number of issues, Dave Chappelle has proven there's a reason he likes palling around with Chris Rock so much. He is completely shameless when it comes to kissing the behinds of the dominant society. Young people went to California in droves due to economics, and they're leaving in droves for the same reason. It has simply become impossible to live in the state, and the situation's only getting worse. This is the sheer state of California. The housing crisis is just part of an overall picture of a cost of living crisis that California, for all its alleged liberalism and can-do, free-spirited brilliance, simply cannot solve, mainly because they don't want to. Its governmental leaders aren't even trying. You've heard the old saying, as goes California, so goes the nation. Well, it's largely true. Californians are fleeing the state because they can't afford to live there. Decades of California's leaders catering to the richest and most corrupt businessmen in America has led to it becoming a place where the rich are running everyone else out, and the state's local and statewide leaders are helping them to do it. The bureaucratic stagnation when it comes to housing is not a flaw in the system. That's the way that they want it. You have London Breed, who's busy having parties and acting like she's still a teenager, and on the other hand, you have Gavin Newsom, who spends his time going to one of the most expensive restaurants in the country with his rich pals. The political equivalent of let them eat cake, or rather let them sleep on the dirt. It's very easy to see that the leaders of California are in the hip pocket of the very people who are killing that state. Before Gavin sets his sights on the White House, he would do far better to fix California. Because the California migrants have also driven up prices in the states that they've been going to. Austin hasn't become more liberal over the last 20 years because it's a university town. It's become that way because they have a lot of California transplants who have moved there. And the same goes for Arizona and Oregon. And of course, when you have a lot of people with higher incomes who all flood into an area with lower income people, housing gets much more expensive because they can outbid everyone else. And the same goes for the rental market as well. But the housing crisis in California that forced so many to flee is part of a larger national trend. The nimbyism and bananaism is also in every other state, too. So who's going to fix this? What's needed here is for someone to establish a statewide model for stopping the runaway cost of housing, which is the main factor driving the cost of living crisis. But Newsom's not thinking about any of that. The only housing he's thinking about is the White House. And that's bad news for Kamala. Newsom has already begun doing interviews with white media outlets like NBC. He's clearly trying to raise his profile outside of California, just like DeSantis has been doing. Nobody actually thinks Kamala can win a presidential campaign, so it makes sense that Gavin is building up his rep. I'm sure there's a lot of Democratic Party insiders who definitely look at him as a much better option to her. Kamala's ascension to the Senate was because of the California political machine. Her old boyfriend, low-down Willie Brown, said it best, don't crowd Kamala. Well, that may have worked in the past with Villaraigosa, but it's not going to work with Newsom. Gavin's got more support than her, and the California political machine will certainly be behind him. He's testing the waters. He wants to see what the reaction will be to him making it clear he's looking at that White House. And keep in mind, the same skiwi contingent who went gaga for Kamala will still stay on board with the Democrats if and when the Dems have her quietly announced that she's not going to seek the presidency. I, for one, would bust a gut laughing if she said that she wants to spend more time with her family. She's only married and has no kids. Though in her case... 
If it does wind up having to come to a competition with Newsom for the nomination next year, I would expect a rerun of the spat that she had with Biden in 2020. She'll briefly remind people of how Gavin did nothing for black Californians and how so many of them fled the state on his watch. And he'll remind everyone of her record as a prosecutor and how he restored Bruce's beach to its rightful owners. Though I'm sure he'll leave out the part about how they had to surrender it all over again because they were prohibited from being able to develop the land. If and when Newsom does make a presidential bid, expect him to bang the Bruce's beach drum as his shield to ward off all criticism of all the black folks who have been forced out of the state. It's all a nothing burger, though it is a test of black voters and whether we will roll over again. We have interests, even if so many of us are too cravenly or timid to press those interests, but we must. Our job is to make it clear that the black vote is no longer free. You have to put some tangibles on the table. And I'm sorry, but some praise for some young black lawmakers in Tennessee don't cut it. Damn your phony praise. Cut the check. You gotta put some tangibles on the table if you want this ballot. Kamala's had her chance and she blew it several times. It doesn't matter how many photo ops she does, be it in Nigeria or Nashville, it doesn't change what she is. And if Gavin Newsom thinks all he's gotta do is flash a smile and say Bruce's beach, he's in for a rude awakening too. We're done playing the sucker for anyone. Good evening and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Theo Hampton, Tramp Steve, Dante J, Isaac, and Quincy X. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you. And you said you want simple yeah. no fries. No. Yeah, I'll take the fries. Family and fellow soldiers, I'm the professor, and this is the moment of truth. You've probably read that Alexandria Cortez wants Clarence Thomas to be impeached. She says if no other Democrats are going to draft an impeachment against him, then she will. This, of course, is not news. He's been her great black whale for a minute now. She's been leading the charge against Thomas since at least last year. Back in 2022, she was citing Thomas's wife's involvement with the Trump White House, that Thomas had tried to block the January 6th commission, and that Thomas failed to disclose income from right-wing organizations as a justification. This was last year, so the white media's breathless coverage of it now, while still truthful, is nonetheless old news. Though it is interesting that Cortez is the one leading the charge, the Democrats have been angry about the right-wing majority on the Supreme Court ever since it happened. But the blame for that one lies on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, but they're not about to blame her. She's their little saint. They put her on a pedestal a long time ago, and they're not about to go ahead and cast any aspersions on her now or ever. She refused to retire during the Obama years, even though she knew she wasn't in the greatest health. So when she died and Trump appointed Amy Barrett to take her place, that falls completely on Ginsburg. And now there's six conservatives on the Supreme Court. Democrats will have to get at least two seats back just to get a majority again. And were it not for the Republicans having had the majority in the Senate when Obama tried to put Mary Garland on the court, the Democrats would have had at least four seats right now. Botch after botch, ever since Mitch McConnell stalled the nomination of Garland, claiming that it was an election year, so they had to wait to see who the new president would be. And then four years later, Republicans went back on that claim. When Trump was up for re-election, they ran through the confirmation of Amy Barrett. Democrats have been spoiling for some payback. Now, who are they going to run off the Supreme Court? 
Democrats are kind of playing their own little dysfunctional, awkward, half-brained game of hardball on this one, though they're not playing it very well. You could go after Sam Alito. God knows he's old enough, 73 years old, but I don't know if he has any underlying health conditions, certainly nothing terminal. Chief John Roberts has epilepsy and suffered a fall some years back, but if he's had any recurring episodes, he successfully kept that secret. Even if he has had more seizures, though, that doesn't count as making him mentally deficient, which would be one of the very few ways to force a justice off the court. So that leaves Clarence Thomas. He's the eldest justice on the court, but he's in good health, so about the only way to get him out of there is to prove that he's so corrupt that he must be impeached. So if possible, Democrats would love to force an opening on the courts, and it looks like they got a person of color to take point on that one for them. Obviously, Uncle Thomas will get no support from the new black media or any black folks with half-decent sense. He's spent decades now playing the fool for white supremacy. He's always done whatever he thought would personally benefit himself at any particular moment. Fun fact, did you know that Clarence Thomas was affiliated with the Black Panthers back when he was in college in the 70s? Notice I said affiliated. I didn't say he was a member, but he was loosely, very loosely associated with them. But we all see how that turned out, didn't we? He was all militant until white power gave him a job, and he went full establishment soon enough. So it doesn't matter if it was John Lewis on the left or Clarence Thomas and Colin Powell on the right. They all were just trying to find some angle to play. They were all just looking to see who was going to be their benefactor. And as soon as they identified who that was, they went all in on whichever team they thought was going to give them the most goodies. They were all willing to take whatever help they could get climbing the ladder. And as soon as they felt they had gotten an end with their new friends, it was all about going for self. Clarence Thomas went from Black Panther wannabe to yellow-bellied coward. And if Thomas's self-centered betrayal of the community sounds familiar, it should. Because Bobby Rush did the same thing. He's become a walking disgrace the last 25 years or so. And truth be told, when he was a young man, he was no profile in courage back then either. Bobby Rush has become a mumble-mouthed, boot-licking, butt-kissing white supremacist Uncle Tom Punk. There have always been serious questions about Rush's activities back then, the people that he ran with, questions about what he was doing and with whom. Fred Hampton had been brutally murdered, and he was set up to be killed by another member of the Black Panthers. So no, I do not consider it to be inappropriate or rude for me to be looking at Bobby Rush all funny and going, hmm, your behavior sure does seem like agent behavior. And if so, how long you've been on the payroll, Bobby? Bobby Rush went from Black Panther wannabe to a doggone house cat real fast. It's only common sense to ask questions about what he's been doing all these decades and for whom. These are the guys who were in the Black Panthers back in the day, or at least in the case of Clarence Thomas, in their orbit. That is why the Black Panthers were so easily destroyed. They let the agents and traitors in by the front door and gave them the keys of the kingdom. Now, the white left is headed in for Thomas, and he deserves it, but my issue is that they're talking about impeaching him, and that's fine, except they always come after a black person first, when it's time to set some damaging precedent. When they want to do some kind of infamous first, they make sure they put a black face on it. Now, if what they were looking to do was to impeach somebody, they could have and should have impeached Antonine Scalia, but of course they would never do that. They wanted to be Clarence Thomas. When they talk about Supreme Court justices who step over the line, whose spouses are up to their necks in dirty dealings, they make sure to maintain that steady drumbeat about him. 
Now, this is no defense of Clarence Thomas. He's trash, plain and simple. But it's no accident that they got Alexandria Cortez to lead the charge on this one. Remember when she went on Beat the Press and said she has Indian ancestry, but that doesn't make her an Indian? And that she has black ancestry, but... That doesn't make me black! Though if she has black ancestry, that automatically means she can't claim to be white. Though she never said, well, I've got white ancestry, but that doesn't make me white. No, she wasn't about to deny that one. Ever since she announced her candidacy for Congress, she's gone out of her way to ignore the black residents in her own district. She's a racist stalking horse. So please don't think that her calling for Clarence Thomas to be impeached was some sort of spontaneous thing. It's not. This is a script being played out. One that's been going on for a while. Again, Clarence Thomas is a card-carrying sellout, and a big part of why they're zeroing in on him is precisely because he's stupid and made himself a giant target. He's so eager to prove to the Federalist Society that he's such a good little boy that he would do anything dumb for them. He thinks that he's protected, and why not? It's some of the richest and most powerful white men in the country who selected him to be on the Supreme Court. That's why he hangs out with them. A pet stays close to its owner. But the relationship between master and slave is reciprocal. Thomas knows that the only way he can continue to be protected by his rich right-wing benefactors is if he continues to pervert the law and the course of justice to protect them. One filthy hand protects the other. Though the phrase political high-handedness has no standard legal definition and has never been put to the test, so he figures that nobody would actually do anything about him. After all, they did nothing about Antonin Scalia, and that racist piece of trash blatantly admitted in court that his Shelby Beholder opinion had no legal basis to strike down the pre-clearance part of the Voting Rights Act. He only did it because he personally didn't like it, and he wanted to protect the Republican politicians' jobs. Scalia actually said that, by the way, read his ruling. He said he didn't like the pre-clearance provision and that the politicians would never change it because they were scared of the voters, and since the lawmakers wouldn't change the law to suit Scalia, he would use his position to change it. Now keep in mind that these right-wing nuts love that old saying that when the people fear the government, that's called tyranny, but when the government fears the people, that's called democracy. Well, Antonin Scalia said that the politicians fear the people, and he sides with the politicians. He saw his job as being to stop democracy. And Clarence Thomas, of course, sided with Scalia in that particular lawsuit. But Clarence Thomas isn't white, so he won't be getting the protection that racial privilege provides. All his little fishing trips and overseas sleepovers that his wealthy benefactors have given him, where he gets to sit around with them and pretend that he's part of the dominant society, that comes to an end. You look at all these photos of Thomas and you see that it's rare where he appears with black people. He has a strong disdain for black people and I'll bet he's had one for a very, very long time. When you look at how easily he's changed allegiances in the past, you see that there's a reason he fit in so well with the white supremacists. He shares white supremacy's values, its ethos, situational ethics. When he was young, white power wasn't opening any doors for him, so he wanted to be a radical. When in reality, he was just auditioning for a job with white power. And as soon as he got that job, he stopped being a radical. Well, at least being a phony pretend radical for black power. He became a radical for white power instead. When he ran into that bump in the road in his confirmation hearing back in the 90s, he claimed he was being lynched in the media for being uppity. Never mind that his new circle of friends were the main ones who used language like that. But one more thing, when you see Uncle Thomas hanging out with his non-black pals, do you know who he reminds me of? Oprah Winfrey.
She also likes to pal around on the boats of the white media figures who she depends on for every crumb of her daily bread. See, black empowerment has many faces, but bootlicking always looks the same. As he sees it, he's escaped blackness. He escaped a long time ago. He's not a black man now. His fate is going to be different and better than the rest of black America. Far as I'm concerned, he deserves whatever he gets. And since white power always breaks its tools, whatever he gets won't be pleasant. But don't let the white liberals fool you. They're not doing this to do us any favors, and they didn't choose to go after him by chance either. Thomas will end up like Robert Bork and Herman Cain and Herschel Walker. The white right only uses these fools as sock puppets so they can point to them and say, here's our black friend over there, way over there. Like Donald Trump did when he was at his rally saying, there's my black people over there, there's my black people. But they're not sticking their necks out for people like Clarence Thomas. If Ocasio-Cortez and her pals put enough heat on Clarence's alleged <laughs> factors, they'll roll right over on him quick. None of them are going to put themselves out on his behalf any more than they did for Herman Cain or Herschel Walker. Clarence Thomas became a famous first 30 years ago because he became the first Supreme Court nominee who was accused of being a sexual predator. In fact, I can't think of any nominee that Congress had to vet who was accused of that. So when it comes time to set some sort of societal precedent, particularly when it's for something bad, they always <laughs> want to give black people the face of it. Even if walking filth like Sarah Lowe or Neil Gorsuch were taking selfies on Elon Musk's yacht, with him shoving $100 bills up their behinds, we'd still see the focus being put on Clarence Thomas regardless. Nobody's asking what associations and perks the white justices are getting. And even if they get Thomas off the bench, that's not going to make it a big subject of discussion for the other justices either. Again, Uncle Thomas is getting dragged for the umpteenth time, and he's welcome to it. I'm reminded of the old saying that character is destined. Which becomes doubly ironic considering Clarence Thomas never had any to begin with. <laughs> and that's the pathetic tragedy of Clarence Thomas. He was a poor judge of the law and an even poorer judge of character. The character of his right-wing pals, the government that gave him his high place in society, but most of all, especially his own. Good day and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Joel Hunter, Anthony Pollard. Stay positive, Keith B, and Yumuka H. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you.